Welcome to Pints and Politics, the podcast version. Pints and Politics is normally a discussion-based radio program about all things political broadcast through the facilities of Trent Radio here in Peterborough, Ontario. In this podcast, I'd like to acknowledge National Poetry Month in Canada and the U.S. Why poetry on a politics show? William Butler Yeats, John Berryman, Margaret Atwood, and Allen Ginsberg would surely all cry out, how can you not talk about poetry when you deal with politics? So in the spirit of that admonition, I am presenting a selection of 12 poems from Ken Victor. These poems appear in Ken's new book, We Were Like Everyone Else, published in March of this year by Comorant Books of Toronto. A bit about Ken. Ken Victor moved up to Canada full-time from the States in 1990 after spending many summers guiding canoe trips in northwestern Ontario. A graduate of the writing program at Syracuse University, over the years he published his poetry in journals on both sides of the border. We Were Like Everyone Else is his first book. Now a Canadian by choice, Ken makes his home with his French-Canadian wife and three children in the Gatineau Hills of West Quebec, where he designs learning for organizations. Now... Let's hear Ken. What originally brought me up to Canada many years ago was wanting to canoe in the vast wilderness area north of Thunder Bay. So I did that for a number of years. Um, And of course, one can't be up there without encountering loons. So this is a poem about an encounter, a particular, very particular encounter with a loon. Before the ways split, an afternoon of ease, under low cedar branches, deer browsed in winter, stretched over quiet water, a loon in black and white flecked silence floats, allows my cedar strip canoe to approach, eyes me without the innate familiar terror of wild things. How many times in boyhood I heard loon cries, reverence, bird prayer, and wanted to answer, even tried, not solely to understand, but to offer in kind. How I long to be close, to touch their cry rising from some long-past aeon I could only visit in their song. Shaded now by tree and rock, the loon floats serenely, eyeing me as if we've met, as if all its instincts for survival, for alarm, have gone quiet as if ten million years never interceded and were back before the ways split, each recognizing some essential sameness, water creature. Blinded by childhood desire, mistaking his calm for trust, I approach, wanting the song, close, closer still, an arm's reach, less, and then see it, the fine filament, wrapped around his bill, the long line of dried blood down the neck, and reappearing from his throat, the fish hook, jumping into the hip-deep chill to help, an act the aeons have failed to pattern into habit, I coax and sing, a frail human sound reaching for pain's common tongue, but he lifts his thick-boned wings, puffs up to his full length and quick splash soundlessly darts away into his dying. This poem on the coldest night in Quebec 
takes its origins. I was uh, working north of Montreal, three hours north of Montreal in the Laurentians, and finished work and drove, had the long drive back to Ottawa, and it was one of those nights where it was 40 below, there was a beautiful full moon, and drove back, and this poem just sort of rose in that long drive. It's It has five um, short sections, images, and I'll try to pause after each one. On the coldest night in Quebec, the small drops of moisture crystallize on the window pane into a single map leading from cold spot to cold spot. Across the valley, the church sees the souls ascent to heaven in plumes of white smoke rising skyward from the pulp mills. Under bright moonlight, a blanket of ice weaves itself stitch by white stitch across the silent face of the St. Lawrence. Hundreds of miles apart, a man who wants his own country and a man who has the country he wants draw closer to their sleeping wives. On such human strategies does our salvation depend. Orion, keeping warm, runs across the sky. The one light from the depener in the village looks like home. Let's go and, and stay in that, uh, that season, in winter. This poem's called Traveler. Snow and Gregorian chant piped through a laptop. The man would be a monk, say, 14th century. Stone hallways and candles, robes of rough cloth on his skin, the cold stone air musty against the sacerdotal meditations flowing out over the walls, to where a farmer, having stopped his cart, lifts his eyes toward falling snow. His family is hungry, his wife dead a long year from a bleed-out in childbirth. Now the songs of Christ come to him in this Christmas month that has snow gathering around his wagon's crumbling wheels. He ponders news of the life to come, salvation, resurrection, before returning to who he is, a man of some station seven hundred years later, without a shred of faith, a place for prayer, a hint of an idea for feeding his brethren. I know Bill is broadcasting this a, a week before the Jewish holiday of Passover, so I'll read a poem about Passover. Um, for those of you who may not know, just to be sure, Passover is the uh, ritual meal that Jews participate in to celebrate uh, their freedom from slavery under the Pharaoh in Egypt. And as part of the telling of that story, you tell the story of the ten plagues. And the last plague, of course, is that the angel of death was going to slaughter the firstborn sons of every Egyptian. And so the Jews painted their houses so the angel of death would know to pass over their houses. That's where the holiday name comes from. Passover, 1998. Is the angel of death dead? My son asks after the meal. Which angel of death? I want to reply. The cancer angel? The plane crash angel? The Auschwitz angel? 
the angel of anaphylaxis, the broken smoke alarm angel, the angel of tainted water. You are my special angel. I catch myself humming. No, I say. The angel of death lives, walks, and breathes among us, Sasha. Then I'm going to have nightmares, he says. Yes, you might have nightmares. But I can come into your room if I do, right? Yes, you can come. My firstborn son drops the matter and strolls away. In the silence of his going to bed, I hold on to his image and picture the angel of death grabbing him by his small shoulders, escorting him out into our neighborhood that is full of firstborn sons who have gone to bed. Across the street sleeps Paul, who is the son of Pierre and Anik. Next door, Nicholas, Greg and Margaret's son. How could any of us not understand why Pharaoh surrendered, why I go upstairs to watch his small body breathe? There are quite a few poems in the book that explore creating family, um, birth, uh, parenting. So I'll end with uh, two poems, one about the birth of my daughter and um, another just about what it means to hold family and to be in family. Sorcery. Daughter, they came for you, the white-robed witches of the incubator kingdom. They came with their voodoo and vocabulary. They came to slice open the weakened home your mother had grown for six months. Some came to kickstart your Thumbelina lungs. Some to claim the desiccated placenta you drank dry. Days before, with their magical gadgetry, with their mumbled incantations, they scanned you for their omen of death. Blood flowing back through your thin umbilicus into your prostrate mother. Sweet little one, when you were born, you had two and a half tablespoons of blood, skin like wax paper, a body my palm could eclipse. In seconds, I threw away my faith, signed off on all their magic. I sought their oracles, recited their sorcery to anyone who'd listen, and later, they came for me, daughter, came for my blood, named me the match, bequeathing you my manic energy, my sleepless nights, this river of desires you could drown in. The white-robed witches of the incubator kingdom bargained with the other side, daughter, and won. And you were released to us, here in the bright light, the heat lamps keeping you warm, the oxygen tanks stoking your breath. Sustenance traveling through tubes as fine as angel's hair. Sweet little one, the white-robed witches of the incubator kingdom kept you from leaving. The rest is up to you. Up to you in your own witches, your own magic, your own vocabulary of transcendence. Speak, daughter, when you're ready. Welcome whatever sorceries will save you. And I'll end with this poem. Another poem about geese. Honking their way across an early morning chalk sky. Their familiar V, you know well what it's doing. Replacing their one tired leader 
with a fresher one, like serial coups happening in an ungovernable country lacking weapons, ego, the clutching of power. Upstairs, safe, my children are still asleep, the wife too, and me writing into the sunrise. This, a kind of family formation, where last dreams take wing, one terror, then another, claiming the lead. One of the things I, I am quite happy about with this book coming out this year is that this year will be, this November, will be the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And there's a poem um, that I uh, wrote about that time and what I was doing. Um, I was teaching at a maximum security prison when the wall fell, and I wrote this poem about it. The Wall at Auburn Prison, Upstate New York, November 1989. That month was the month of walls. Who had not spent time transfixed over Germans pickaxing their own separation, spraying champagne among the uncertain guards to mock their water cannons. The inmates had heard, believed it their struggle as much as anyone's. After all, inside the immense yellowing prison that month, inmates had their own wall to cheer for. After years of weather, the north wall that supported one of the aging guard towers had weakened and needed repair. Within days, it appeared, a gap in the prison wall, thirty feet high by ten feet wide, the inmates could smell like a fresh scent. They kept turning towards it, away from anything their teachers might say or do to hold their attention. The gap, barbed wire and thick coils two rows deep at its base, set the student inmates to dreaming. Carlos, in particular, who wanted to write on nothing but young girls, Young girls, he said, when asked to develop three different topics for essays. Young girls, he repeated again. Young girls, he said a last time. Those are my three topics. He turned towards the opening. Mitch, with his tattoo of brass knuckles, began to mumble when he saw the gap, talking about making his move busting out because a chance like this wouldn't happen again. Possibility was coursing through their blood like an antidote. They had a kind of giddy weightlessness, as if gravity had somehow turned unreliable or faulty. On the black and white TV in the corner of the yard, the nearly emotional news anchors fawned over the march of history, speaking as if they knew where it wanted to go, even how it might get there and bring everybody along. From where they stood, history somehow seemed headed to a place where it could finally settle down, build a life, never look back. A land of friendly neighbors, happy voters, free assembly. The inmates knew better. Looking through that fresh gap, past the borders of their one country, impenetrable, isolated, full of its own unwritten news, they could see, see out, See into the aimless world, see the broken cars rolling down State Street, the old buses with their lotto ads, empty sidewalks, only now and then a young girl, a young girl, a young girl. 
This is the poem from where the title of the book, We Were Like Everyone Else, comes from. To the Unborn Historians The history of the present moment will be written by you, much as we might want to claim it for ourselves. One day our time will call out to you, and, like a birder in a thick forest hearing a song thought long extinct, you'll stop, listen, decide to linger a while to hear if the song has a story. We'll shift from actors in our own lives, checking off another task on the list, praising our children, ensuring the paycheck will last the month, to become your favorite subjects. We won't leave much for you. Paper gave way to zeros and ones, culture to commerce. Unless you're willing to dumpster dive in our time, you'll likely lose your way chronicling the folly of our fools. As to us, here's hoping you'll find a clipping, a shred, a bit of our cosmic dander to tease out a plausible explanation. We know your telling will be an earnest telling, well-meant and mostly misguided. You want to surmise something from our shards? Surmise this. We were like everyone else. It was about food and shelter, the hunt for some scraps of meaning. Whatever you'll say about us, we would love to help, but you are out of earshot, and we are too far for shouting. At Paragon Park, to my high school girlfriend on her 60th birthday. You chose the blue elephant. I've forgotten most of it. The courtship, the fast food joints, the prom. Rituals we could never avoid or subvert. Instead, I have August of 73, in those last warm weeks when summer, browned and greasy, always seemed ready to land in a heap at the high school's front door. We went for a day to an old, decrepit dinosaur of an amusement park, its house of mirrors, its wingless pterodactyl for a ferris wheel, and you and I wandering among the bones with our twenty bucks to burn on anything. One ride, I can't recall its name, velodrome, aerodrome, lose your lunchadrome, was between the stands for taffy apples and chili dogs. For the ride of your life, we walked down a ramp, and gave our tickets to some toothless Joe so we could lean against the wall of a round chamber and wait for something to happen. You were wearing that Indian blouse of light blue, and me, I was wearing what I always wore, and you loved me nonetheless. A deep creaking of levers, gears, chains started the floor and wall spinning until their speed was so wickedly fast that the floor began to descend leaving us pinned against the wall, supported by nothing but the laws of centrifugal force, with one of us laughing and the other screaming, though I can no longer say for sure who was doing what. Holding hands together for what we thought were our dear lives, we gazed up at a circle of blue sky, spinning as empty and remote as our futures. Cindy, sweetheart, fair girl woman of my high school memories. Do you know it's taken me more than 40 years to connect that moment to the rest of my life? To finally admit I'm standing on nothing, only the physics of speed holding me up. How sweetly adolescence deceived us. 
we believe the ride would have something to grab onto. And now that we've learned it doesn't, we know when it stops, we fall. The floor, once beneath me, never came back. Yet right then, twirling together, lost in our screaming laughter, I thought of nothing beyond the blue day and the warmth of your hand. There was this one moment, my faith that life was great and you were beautiful, and as soon as this dizzying ride ended and the floor returned, I was going to slap down fifty cents to dead-eye one, two, three foul shots just like that and win whatever prize your heart desired. This poem is in memory of my father. Colon Ascending colon As in that part of the large intestine which carries feces from the sacum to the transverse colon. Colon, as in those two dots, one above the other, signaling something's to follow, pay attention. Which came first, colon or colon? And cancer of the colon? I thought it a disease of grammarians. When it had metastasized to the brain and nothing more could be done, they tossed his billable body onto the gurney, wheeling him down the hall for a 3 a.m. scan. I flew down to Boston. He'll stay here, I told the physician, over my dead body. Home, I placed a baby intercom by his bed. For pain, I slapped a morphine patch on his upper arm. Come morning, his Texas catheter delivered a bag of urine colored the honey of killer bees. When his own father died, he mailed me a note, a letter, a meditation, I don't know what to call it, an eight and a half by eleven, folded crisp as his suit pants. Open it up. On the very top, he wrote, From dust, then a long, elegant line to the bottom. Unto dust. So what was the point? Our last conversation. You think it was about gratitude or apology or advice? The water pump in the basement needed replacing. Get a bell and gossip, he said. Instructions for changing the colostomy bag of a loved one. Change at least two times per week or when the excrement leaks. Wash your hands. Clean the area. Pretend you're an auto mechanic. The hospice volunteer. See the toes turning purple? Not long now. That's the sign. He shut down from extremities to core as if his heart were a dimmer switch. The body in repose. Can I call it repose? Let me call it repose. Tubes. Patches. Bags. How quickly the palace of everything we are closes. Because we're in April, let's read a short seasonal poem. Late Spring Snowfall Winter again, like a jilted lover. Three weeks ago, the sun declared its wishes. No, no, no. 
beating the ground black. Disbelieving, winter went sulking into gullies and ravines, hiding like an angry boy. And now, uninvited, handsome as ever, he's back, tossing out his white silk, everything he touches seduced. In the garden, even the soil has begun to swoon. Sustenance My first child, now in utero, does not know that I walk downstairs at four in the morning on a humid July night to get its hungry mother some toast with a bit of raspberry jam, or that I am a man with a low-paying job trying to pretend he believes life will surely provide for himself and his new child and for his beautiful wife, who sleeps now in front of our single twenty-inch fan, while I stand before her, holding the toast, wondering what cells my child will coax out of me, out of my wife, curled towards the fresh air, now cooling her aging and triumphant body. Some things about the next poem that uh, help to know. So this poem is based on the story of O.J. Simpson, who was a star football player in the National Football League, and whose nickname was Juice. And two decades after his career ended, his wife, his ex-wife, was found murdered. Uh, O.J. Simpson, Juice, was considered a suspect, and he fled in a white Ford Bronco that resulted in a car chase that was broadcast live on TV. And this poem uh, makes a number of references to that story. What seems to matter most. When Ricky Holt, juvenile delinquent, booked into the woods that day in 81 to escape his early release program, I yelled to him that he juked like the juice, the way he was running in and out between the scrub oaks and pines. And Ricky stopped and glanced back at me with that handsome black face of his, knowing I could never catch him. So he smiled before disappearing, and then I had to radio for the dogs, because we couldn't have him loose this close to an off-season town on a windy stretch of Cape Cod. So eventually they got him and hauled his ass back in front of me, and asked me if I wanted to take him back or have him locked up. Well, I said, without a moment's hesitation, you can lock him up. I don't know why I said it. He wasn't a bad kid, just not able to get his act together. Which I understand. I mean, was I much different? And I'm not sure I have it together even now, 30 years after I said lock him up. Which is when Ricky went back into the system, and I didn't give him a second thought, until the juice again became a story. His white bronco going down the freeway, taking me back to Ricky in those woods, dodging trees like nasty linebackers aiming to take their crack at him. Blam, you sucker! And Ricky thinking he could get away, turn his big dreams into something real the way O.J. had been the number one man for a lot of years, breaking records and downfield tackles before he went to trial. Black man, white woman. The whole sorry story driving out all other news. In America, brought back to what seems to matter most to it. And me thinking how I was once the judge in the whole goddamn jury, and I made my decision lickety-split, no second chances. 
you either get with the program or you get. And I started wondering where that came from. Why there wasn't the slightest bit of mercy wrapped somewhere inside my ready justice. As if I thought under Ricky's Converse All-Stars, he must have had bootstraps. Just like those turn-of-century immigrants. And if he wasn't going to begin to pick himself up, I wouldn't do it for him. And so Ricky returned to the state-secure facility where he'd started, where he'd wait to hear what came next. Words from the social worker, the juvenile judge, the facility superintendent. Pronouncements woven together like strands in a rope vigilante citizens were only too ready to yank. Work I seldom hold unquestioned ideals now. I had them when young, watering what I declared seedlings of revolution. They could explode things, split truth from propaganda, draw out the injustice, unmask authorities. There! There! Don't you see? Now, when I think the rare, sure thought, I take out the bullshit detector Mr. Wilson revealed to me that summer I was his apprentice upholstery tacker. The factory had one ceiling fan, and he'd spit the tacks into the couch, rat-a-tat-tat. He'd call me college boy, tell me to go spit on a barn door, then maybe he'd give me another lesson, or maybe not. I'd say, I can't do it. My teeth aren't the owner's tools, plus I had orthodontics. He'd wave his hand in front of my face. That's my bullshit detector, he'd say, and he'd start twitching his hand and clicking his tongue like a Geiger counter. You've got to be one stupid-ass college kid. Then his five yellow teeth would smile at me. I swore I'd make the company get him a rack of new teeth and started recruiting for the cause. Life, you idiot child, took my teeth. Wilson wanted no part of my oppressed worker, None of my cow-dung means of production. I've had the means of production going on forty years, he'd say, holding the hammer out in front of his crotch, and my paycheck's good enough to raise six of them. My organizing lasted a few more lunch hours before I surrendered to becoming the college kid who spent the summer learning to spit tacks and hammer them in one motion. Who did I think I was kidding? In truth, I really was the owner's son, doing nothing more than slumming for the summer, applying intro to Marx to write the world. Wilson's detector knew otherwise. Where I saw raw injustice and uplifted victims with righteousness, Wilson declared rescue out of bounds. Not here, not me. I'm not broken. You're not fixed. Here's a bag of tax, boy. Go over there and work. Now, let's listen to Kim.
I am presenting a selection of 13 poems from Ken Victor. <laughs> 